The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to the IGN UK podcast. I am Matt Perslow, not the usual voice that you get first thing on a podcast. And today I am joined by Emma Matthews. Hello. Hello. And the other Matt, Matt Jones. It's a triple Matt. I don't know if you've noticed this. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> the rare triple Matt. We, uh, yeah, this uh, this sort of trio setup does not happen very often, but uh, you've got a real... Real rare treat. It's a shiny of a treat. <laughs> we're playing, uh, we're talking about esports a little bit today. It's that we're in a trio, right? Oh, Who's yeah. Who's the jump master? A... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this week, we uh, we got to see a little bit more of uh, Tears of the Kingdom, a game where you can seemingly do whatever you want by slamming things together and just hoping it all works. We're not actually going to be talking about Tears of the Kingdom, but we are going to be talking about a film based on a game where you can try and do whatever you want by sticking anything together. This is the Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, the new film based on D&D. Matt, you have seen it. I have, yeah, it's pretty good. And so have I. Uh, So regular listeners to this podcast may know that from the trailers I was quite sceptical about this. I thought that it was going to be a bit of the kind of like overly marvel formula being put on on sort of like the the D setting and i was a little bit i think this is going to be a bit dumb i really liked it there isn't really a lot like of this. like uh oh he's behind me isn't he kind of comedy mm-hmm. in this they actually have found a new route with with which to do jokes which is quite pleasing yeah i um so we're kind of like lay it out so this is directed by jonathan goldstein and john francis daly so these are the guys that wrote uh spider-man homecoming and they directed Game Night, uh, another very good kind of like fun comedy. And uh, this is a story of kind of like a group of adventurers going out to basically get MacGuffins and do things uh, in, in the fantasy realm of D&D. Uh, you've got kind of like a, a classic kind of party setup with a bard. You've got a druid. You've got a sorcerer. There's, uh, there's some rogue stuff in there. There's a paladin. It's got quite a lot of the kind of like fundamental foundations of a D campaign in there but no cleric but, they don't care about heels yeah yeah <laughs> clearly <poorly> balanced <laughs> but uh matt what was kind of like you saw it before me uh so you've had a, a longer time to kind of let your thoughts percolate what what's your general vibe i think the thing that i i felt the entire way is that you can look at every scene and see like where the dice rolls are happening like Mm -hmm. it's not something that appears on screen but if you spent enough time in you know tabletop campaigns you can tell when characters are getting stuff wrong there's a like a really good scene um that's uh between uh chris pine's character and uh michelle rodriguez where they're about to be executed 
and mm-hmm. uh, Michelle Rodriguez is fighting off the entirety of the uh, squad that has come to do that. And Chris Pine is just like, he can't quite get his hand restraints off. Yeah. And it's exactly like just constantly rolling critical fails. Um, and he, like he, you know, I won't spoil the scene, but it's like, it's as if behind all this happening, there is just a like uh, a 17 year old, like just that can't quite get the save. It's really good. So that was one of the scenes that really sold me on what they were doing for that exact reason. So you've got kind of like, I say Chris Pine is kind of like, so Edgin, his character is is bound up and his friend Holger, uh, she's a barbarian, is kind of like doing stuff. And the way that she's kind of fighting off these other characters, I, I could see situations where I've played D&D before where you've got a character where, you know, you've got a player going, oh, now I do this, now I do this, now I do this. And they're rolling and they're rolling to hit and they're getting their hits. Whereas your other character is like, oh, I try to get out of my restraints again. What have you rolled? I've rolled a zero. Well, you've got to spend another six seconds doing it. Yeah. And there are some Um, other things as well where it feels as if they're doing the creative problem solving of uh, mm -hmm. what you do during a a D&D campaign of like, uh, we've got this item and because, you know, this item has been useful before, why don't we just use it again here uh, in the same way that you would do creative problem solving? And then like a DM would say like, "Ah, I've come up with a way to foil this plan but it it doesn't feel like movie script writing. It feels like you're a bunch of like friends just hanging around a table and this is what's happening in the story. And I feel like if it didn't get that theme right, I don't think it would work. I think mm-hmm. it would just be a kind of fun action movie. But it it just does it it understands the tone exactly correctly. Yeah, the, I, I really like it that it never feels like it's trivializing D D. Like it takes the stuff of the lore. Like, surprisingly, like, it's quite serious about the law without being dull or kind of, like, uh, sort of, like, pretentiously nerdy about it. It knows all of this stuff is sacred to the people that love it. And it does it in a loving way rather than a kind of, like, faux-intelligent way, I guess. There's a bit where Hugh Grant, of all people, just says the word Baldur's Gate. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, whoa, this, the, yeah, like, he's taking it seriously and they're including the stuff that you would mention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of like there's, there's several times where kind of places like, you know, Neverwinter as a city is important to the film. It's kind of one of the central locations. But Baldur's Gate is mentioned. Uh, Icewind Dale is kind of like has has a little bit of time in the, in the spotlight. It's got a lot of the races of pretty much like straight up included as very, very iconic pieces. I my, the last campaign I played, I played a, an Aracocra, which is a giant bird kind of creature. They get a lot of love in this film. <laughs> yeah, you you get one five minutes into the film, and you get an Aracocra, and I was absolutely delighted. Um, obviously, the central party then is made up of kind of like you've got they go kind of I guess kind of like fairly quote unquote conservative for their central party. You've got a human, you've got a human barbarian, then you've got a half elf, a tiefling. And it's a tiefling that looks much more human than the demonic sort of tieflings that I've we know heard from. That like purple tieflings isn't actually a thing. Apparently, like that's just what everybody decides. I mean, kind of Baldur's Gate three definitely their interpretation of tieflings are kind of much more red skinned mm. and much more kind of demonic in the face. Um, but um, certainly, there's no Arakokra, There's no kind of dragonborn in the main party. But what I think the main party does do very well is. Each of those personalities is distinctly like um, what the people that would play those characters. I love that kind of like the the bard is 
kind of like, you know, Chris Pine is very, very silly and I've never known a bard that wasn't silly. Um, I had a chat with the directors about this, which you will all get to listen to later on in the episode, um, where they explain kind of like how they were playing around with that. But I think that vibe, as you say, that kind of tabletop feel without it ever not being a fantasy is always there. What did you think of the, what did you think of the actual kind of like depth of characters and kind of the quest because i'd say if anything that it gets wrong it's not that it's wrong but like i think the characters can feel a little slim and the plot is very straightforward mcguffin yeah absolutely i but it, it's all it needs really i think that um the druid char- character kind of just gets like a little bit hand waved away like i think mm-hmm. that their mo- motivations really don't get resolved and i think that the like the um romance between uh Justice Smith's uh, wizard and her character is like it's kind of meaningless actually like it could have probably not even been in there and the film wouldn't suffer for it mm-hmm. um but I, I also I think that the main thread of um Chris Pine's character and his motivations it works well enough yeah even though it is a little bit you know genre a little bit tropey but mm-hmm. it's it's fine it, I think that like this is a a movie that has got a good enough thread it, it will appeal to fans and uh, it also just has like pretty good CGI in it, which yeah. I, I was incredibly impressed by. There's there's like an illusion magic scene, which I think is maybe some of the best use of CGI that I'll see all year. But there's, mm-hmm. there's the um, an amazing like constantly transforming into different animals over the course of yeah. an escape sequence that is like mm-hmm. actually like really technically impressive. Um, yeah, that I see uh, just alone for that. Yeah, it's a that that's kind of like a single. It's done as a single shot. Mm-hmm. You know, your classic like nineteen seventeen. Your sort of like you know the stuff that Alfonso Cuarón was doing in Children of Men. But it, as you say, it's it's a druid casting wild shape, and they get to change from from animal to animal. Um, I think the like the fact that it's got good CG in an era where Marvel, I guess, because of the crunch that they're inflicting on their CG artists, is the the general perception of what's going on. It's nice to see something that has its own kind of art style for the CG, I guess. It's very Dungeon Master source book. It kind of teeters between kind of reality and cartoonish. Um, but yeah, I think it's accomplished. I mean, Emma, that's something that I guess you've, as you've not seen the film, but you have seen the um, the trailers. Did you kind of like like the look of the film? Do you like the vibe that you're getting from those trailers? Yeah, I think so. Like, I'm not sort of really into D&D, so... But what you're saying sounds interesting and cool. Like mm-hmm. I know for someone like me who's not into it, maybe a lot of the references and stuff are going to go over my head a little bit. But um, would you say it's like accessible for people who just are looking for like a cool kind of fantasy movie with like some action going on? Like, is it kind of like just one quest that's told in like quite a neat way and then it finishes? Or like, you know, am I going to need to know stuff before I kind of go yeah. in? It's it's definitely a it's one of those things that's peppered with kind of references and obviously is set in a world that a lot of people have spent, you know, at this point decades exploring. But it's definitely designed as like the I wouldn't say like onboarding ramp seems like the wrong word for it, because that feels very much like what kind of like the first few Marvel films were, which was like getting you geared up for what is clearly going to be kind of this massive long term project. I'd say it feels a bit more standalone than that, even though there's obviously potential for it to go elsewhere. But like you, like you were asking, kind of like it does. It's it's a single quest. It's a clearly very much like the sort of thing that we call a one shot in the tabletop community, which is where you sit down around a table for one evening and you get the whole thing done in one. 
Like, Matt, was that the kind of vibe that you were getting from it? Yeah, absolutely so. And I do like that it is, it's one main thing that they want to try and achieve, but there are complications and hurdles along the way. Mm-hmm. Like, there are multiple, like, heist ideas that they have to do in order to, like, and set things up. Like, it isn't just that they're, like, they need to go to one place and resolve it. They need to get things first to be able to do a thing to, you know. It 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 is very, uh, yeah, it remains interesting, I think, the whole mm-hmm. way through. That thing about it being a heist, I think that's the the thing that's interesting is is that like we're so used to now that uh, fantasy uh, like equals epic, long, like grand, yeah, sure. and this is completely the opposite of that. Like this isn't Game of Thrones where you need to have like you know dedicate yourself for for almost a decade to get the story told. It's not Lord of the Rings that requires fifteen hours of visual storytelling to get through. It's so small scale compared mm-hmm. to what we're used to from fantasy. In yeah. a way that like makes so much sense for what it's doing and and like is surprisingly like refreshing for it. It is fun, yeah. I guess the stakes of this film are just like the the benefit of a single city, which is yeah. more interesting than just like oh the world is going to end unless we like. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but you're right. It is just like kind of chill that it is one person wants something that kind of goes a little bit out of hand. Mm-hmm. So does does that make you feel a little bit more confident about it, Emma? A little bit, yeah. Because like yeah. I've seen trailers and stuff like they've had so many trailers for it, so I've caught like little glimpses of some of like the you know the big scenes. Um, but yeah, then I was like thinking that like, am I going to be lost like with with the references and stuff? But it does sound really fun, and the fact that it kind of sounds like yeah, like bite size in that it has a quest that it takes on, deals with it, and yeah, it's not like the whole end of the world thing. That sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely not going to need. There's there's like a, a a a big chubby dragon in it that's been in several of the the trailers. Yeah, you do not need to know. Like he genuinely does have like a whole backstory in the D and D lore that's about like how he became like that big and why he is what he is. You literally don't need to know. It's just like a fun joke about a massive dragon in a in like a gold pit, basically. And you don't need to know any more than that. So that sounds I think good. That sounds good. The, like I imagine it's something that if you watch the movie and you're kind of like you get really into it then it's like there's so much to read after yeah. as well yeah yeah absolutely like you know this is clearly going to be it's obviously this film has been made because of the popularity of D based on kind of like how critical role and those sort of things have massively increased the popularity of the game but i can see it then going the other way like people, there's going to be loads of people that watch this like i think it's going to be it's not going to ever be as big as a Marvel project, is it? But I think it's got the legs to maybe be something of a of a good kind of pre-summer hit. And I can see it going to be like, there's so many people are going to onboard themselves into D&D because of it. I bet there are going to be uh, as many people that just watch this and are like, oh, I really like the D&D universe and, yeah. don't, and don't even know that they're a, like a tabletop game at all. Yeah, like, which actually feels really refreshing. I like the idea that they're like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing you could play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's super cool. Like, I, I think the main thing was is like I just came out of it quite, just genuinely surprised that it was the film that I kind of wanted it to be without ever realizing that's what I wanted it from. Mm. I think I went in wanting something that was much closer to the kind of like the slightly 
grimier settings that D&D does, you know, the kind of like the D&D &D version of Gotham, basically, which is Baldur's Gate. And then to get this and be like, oh, no, actually, th this was this was what I wanted all along. I just didn't realize it. They might do it for the sequel, you know, little like dark little turn before they do the. That's yep. true. <laughs> yep. Like like no, no guarantees of a sequel. But obviously it does feel like I quite like the idea of this being like an anthology style set of films. Oh, where a it's different like, group of. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just kind of like maybe have like one character that like maybe if Chris Pine's the character that is like a bit of a nomad that wanders from group to group, mm -hmm. but you get like whole new characters, whole new settings. Like D and D is a multiverse; you can fucking fling it to various different parts of you know. You can go to Planescape, you can go to Ravenloft, all of that. Very fun. Not a question that got answered in my interview with the directors <laughs> of D and D did try and worm out of them where they'd like to go next. And there's a little bit of a hint of that, but obviously no guarantees. But now, not a, not a thing that we do very often on the podcast because we don't get these opportunities very often, but you're about to get a almost 20 minute long interview with the two directors of D&D. Uh, if you have absolutely no interest in an interview with uh, the directors of D&D, I guess skip forward by about 20 We're minutes. We're going to talk it's about Succession and Yellow Jackets. Got yeah, that way for you on the other end. Um, but this is a very, very nerdy interview. Like they went full D and D with me, and if that's something you'd like, just in case, on uh, after. if anybody's worried about spoilers, is that something that they have to be concerned about in this little section? Uh, no, no, no. Very like there's kind of references to kind of rule sets that were used in the film. So there are certain like you know abilities that some of the characters use that we'll talk about. But it's a you know pretty much a spoiler free very um, nice interview. See you on the other side, gamers. I'm joined by the two directors of Dungeons & Dragons, Honor of Among Thieves. Gentlemen, if you could introduce yourselves. Yes, I'm Jonathan Goldstein. And I'm John Francis Daly. It's very nice to be with you. Um, I was wondering to begin with, uh, perhaps a fairly obvious question, is what kind of history did you have with D&D &D before signing on to this movie? Um, we were both big fans. Jonathan was uh, a player as a kid, I think first edition. I uh, was introduced to it on the set of Freaks and Geeks because my character was... Uh, supposed to be a big fan, so we played a campaign, and then I remembered how amazing it was and took it up again two years before we actually started this film and played with my adult friends um, every week. Yeah, and, and you know, what, Bruce, what we loved about it was the sort of freedom it gives you as a player. It's not a set story or a plot you have to follow. It's um, only limited by your imagination, which as filmmakers is a bit irresistible. Mm -hmm. And obviously, whilst there is that freedom, it is obviously set in there's a law, there's Absolutely. there's a universe and stuff like that. And you've chosen perhaps like the most iconic part of the Forgotten Realms. You've mm -hmm. chosen the Sword Coast. You've chosen Faerun. Yeah. What is it about that world rather than maybe going to one of the other parts of the multiverse that you chose this right. one? Well, well there, go ahead. John. I was going to say that we, we wanted to give the audience... Uh, sort of a, a familiar appearing way into a fantasy film. Um, we didn't want everything about this to be different than the fantasy movies they've seen in the past. And the Sword Coast felt like the most accessible, the most kind of medieval traditional look. And from there, we could pull the rug out and do things in a way that haven't been done. Mm -hmm. And then um, obviously, it's very important to settle on a tone, right? And kind of so my introduction, I was bought, I was 3.5 edition, I started playing, and then the Baldur's Gate video games were very important to me mm -hmm. as a kid, which obviously I think treat maybe the Forgotten Realms a little bit more like how kind of like Tolkien would treat mm -hmm. kind of Lord of the Rings. 
and this is obviously not that and yeah. it's also not Game of Thrones it's not it's not Peter Jackson's movies so where did you know what tone you were going to take coming in um we did we did we knew that um we wanted the spirit of gameplay to shine through and i think if you're ever playing a campaign there's always that bit of humor that comes with gathering with your friends and and having a lot of fun um and that felt like a fun way to depart from the expected uh tropes of the fantasy genre that have been normally depicted in film and television because we didn't want to do the same thing again it's been done before it's been done very successfully and well and so we knew we had to carve out a different path mm-hmm. it reminds me as you say like it does remind me of of tabletop sessions that i've had and i was wondering is did the plot come from any D&D games that you've played where you've had moments where you're like now that that would work as a as a sequence in a game or was it purely like you sat down and you worked out a campaign that would be done cinematically the latter i would mm-hmm. say there's nothing specific just maybe a location or or two that was inspired by the games we played but um we wanted to um really focus on that sense of um of spontaneity of unpredictability of your characters in those moments where they screw up and they're faced with a challenge, pitching ideas, some of which are terrible ideas, some of which ultimately work, and, and you roll, you feel them rolling without ever seeing a dice, any dice in the movie. Mm-hmm. You, you say that, like, that's the thing that I think that, I, as a player, that I loved the most of this film was I could see the rules in the mm-hmm. background. It's almost like I could tell that you guys are over it as DMs mm-hmm. and you're governing those those dice rolls. So kind of like... When, when you were looking at that, were you sort of like creating scenarios that were very much a case of, I know that this person is going to fail because they're going to roll a critical fail on this. Right. And it's not necessarily going to necessarily make sense from a traditional point because yes. it's just the bad look of the roll, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that was uh, what was so appealing to us was that we were able to depart from the traditional form of storytelling in in movies in that you start to feel the rhythm of where the movie's going to go. And because we were trying to emulate that unpredictability that you get from playing a game, it's fun to lead the audience down this path that feels like, okay, I've got a handle on where this is headed, and then entirely pull the rug out or hit a roadblock that requires them to pivot. Now, some people could complain, well, that just makes the story a mess. But to us, that's what makes it different from all of the other sort of more traditional story structures that we're so used to. The best example is probably, for me, the bridge that collapses. You know, we set out a very elaborate series of rules. The audience starts to think, oh, wow, this is going to be interesting as they cross this bridge. We even do a shot overhead, so you think they're seeing what's ahead. Um, and then it just explodes and they never even get to the bridge. So to us, that feels like the ultimate, like you set up your Indiana Jones dungeon crawl and, uh, we and then at never the end, start it. Yeah. Instead of using your whip, you, you shoot the guy with the, <laughs> mm-hmm. with the sword. Mm-hmm. In terms of kind of like the, the planning out of your, your set pieces, were you almost addressing kind of like the dungeon master's guide or the player's guide and thinking like, what are scenarios that I know that I could create at a tabletop and I can use as a scenario. Absolutely. I mean, of course, we knew that we needed to appeal to non-players as well. This film is not just for players. And we also wanted to make sure that um, you didn't have to have any prior knowledge of the game to enjoy it. 
But that said, I think what the rule book and the 50 years of lore and gameplay mechanics established for us was this guideline to follow and really allow us to kind of work within the lines of the game so that you have those those um, roadblocks, you have those conflicts that um, if you just could solve anything with magic would would make it all less, I don't know, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like the most important thing of, uh, of D&D is obviously you've got the Dungeon Master and making sure that they've got a good story, which is what you guys have created as your directors. But you guys are sort of also playing the characters as well because you had to bring together a party. You had to That's gather right. a party. Um, why did you choose the characters, the classes, and the races that you did? Well, we approached it like we would any ensemble film where you want the group of people you bring together to be contrasting with one another so that there's differences and conflicts among them, but also, um, you know, unexpected and not not the thing you've seen every time. Um, and so you've rarely seen a bard as the leader of a group like this. Um, I can't recall seeing um, a male-female 100% platonic relationship where the, the woman fights most of the battles and the man comes up with the plans. That felt new to us. Um, so it was really not so much about representing the most popular classes played by players in D&D, but just what would offer us the most opportunities for fun, for diverse abilities. You want some magic users, some non-magic users, all that. Mm-hmm. And there's not a distinct... There's not a dwarf in the party. There's not a. There's obviously a half elf, but there's not a full kind of elven sort of scholarly major or anything like that. Yeah. It does feel like that you were looking for something that was a little bit, I guess, maybe slightly more relatable to the people that are in the audience. They're a little bit scrappy, like we all are in real life, right? That's right. That's right. I think we wanted to depart from the tropes. I think there's something so iconic in the venturing party of Lord of the Rings that we didn't want to we didn't want to tread upon stuff that had already been established and done so well. So we like the idea that they all are a bit complicated and messy in terms of their backstories and what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. When when I saw the original trailers for it, I was slightly disappointed, let's say that the uh, the main cast didn't have the two classes that I'm known for playing, which is Dragonborn and Arakokra. Uh-huh. And then five minutes into the film, you get I get both. a Dragonborn and both. an Aracocra. Yes. And you can probably see why it would be very difficult yeah. to have them be along for the ride the entire time, <laughs> considering we did it all God. practically. Absolutely. But that's the thing that I loved about it. Practically, you know, I you know grew up with films like Labyrinth, which are mm-hmm. very much like sort of, I guess, set out the parameters for what I like to see out of these fantastical kind mm-hmm. of species. What was it like building a Dragonborn or an Aracocra? It was brilliant. Um, you know, it was this, this company called Legacy who did Baby Yoda and a bunch of other things that just, they're, they're the best in the business at this. And when you hire them, they don't just build the things, they send their people over, their puppeteers and controllers and all. And so it's a, it's a big operation, but it was really important to us to not simply rely on CG for all the creatures in the, in the movie, because like you, we also love those movies from the 80s and 90s. I mean, Never Ending Story. You felt that he was riding some part of a luck drag. Right? <laughs> like it looked silly, but he was on something. Yeah, and I do think, you know, what people don't necessarily realize is that there is 
uh, technologically advanced component even to the practical side of the filmmaking. So with our Dragonborns, that was utilizing state-of-the-art motion capture technology where our puppeteer was actually speaking the lines and doing facial movements that were then captured by a camera and emulated through the servos of the mask of the Dragonborn. So that's technology that didn't exist 15 years ago in the practical space. And that was what was so exciting to us to be able to kind of uh, use those sort of old school mentality filmmaking approaches as well as this new class of technology that's just being explored. Yeah, I don't know if they have Fangoria magazine over here, but that I grew up obsessed with all that like monster makeup mm-hmm. and stuff and to be able to do that is so cool. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that um like you now you've established kind of what these races are like if you did get the opportunity to come back, do you think those kind of characters are always going to have to be kind of side characters because of the way they look, or is the the technology there to bring them to a party? I think there's a way to do it where they have a more prominent role. I think it would probably have to be a hybrid of practical and visual effects to to do it uh, successfully. But you look at even the movie AI, uh, where the teddy bear was this perfect example of um, fusing uh, practical puppeteering techniques with then rod removal uh, from visual effects side of things to create something that feels tangible, that feels real and um, kind of spectacular. Mm -hmm. The thing that I really love about the party as well is you've obviously got, from a filmmaking perspective and a script writing, you always want to make sure all your characters are distinct, right? But from my perspective, I see on there, I can see where their alignment is on mm-hmm. the alignment thing. But also I can see the people I've played with in those roles. <laughs> yeah. Like every bard I've ever played with is a lunatic <laughs> and, like, and really likes to kind of really go for the silliest play they can. Every paladin I've ever played with, incredibly self-serious, yeah. knows the lore of the Forgotten Realms inside out. And so what were you thinking of when you were can you put in the kind of personalities of these characters together? What did you want to highlight there? I think you you nailed it. I mean that that they do sort of represent players and the style of play. Um, you know, the paladin character of Zank is the most extreme version of a guy with no sense of humor who takes it all very seriously and almost feels like he walked in from a different movie. Um, but yeah, that was intentional. That- but I think you touched on a really interesting point that is there is some um, psychological complexity to the game that you don't find in any other game where people are drawn to these classes and types and I think that's a really fun thing to explore like why does someone choose to be a paladin is that how they see themselves it's a personality test in a way mm-hmm. and then kind of that reflects you know for, for friends that I have that have never touched a d20 those characters still work as compelling archetypes right within, within the film I think people will be drawn to those characters if they would have been drawn to them if they'd ever played D&D, right? That's right. And I think the thing is, is that there has to be something relatable in each of them, even if they're so different from you in every other way. I think if if we're doing our jobs right, we can see a little bit of ourselves even in the most ridiculous character like Zenk. Mm-hmm. You've obviously, you know, the entire film is constantly pulling from the source material. I was wondering, out of any rule or concept that's in in D&D as a rule set, what was some of your favorites to bring to life? Rule or concept? For me, it was the use of magic. Mm -hmm. The fact that it requires 
uh, multiple component types like somatic, verbal, material. That to me added this level of complexity to magic use that I don't think I've ever seen in the film space. It's usually just people extending their hands and beams of energy come out of it. And so I think it added to the tangible nature of the of the film and um, kind of sets itself apart from other magic use that you see. Mm, I love the, that Simon has the kind of gizmo on yeah. his belt, right? And you can see, and as someone that knows the game, I can see like, oh, I know the pieces that he needs yeah. to put this together. And, mm. you know, obviously you're not getting like a full zoom in on that, but you know what he's doing. Right. You, you can relate to him yeah, uh, that if you play the game. It's sold with the toy, so yeah. you get one. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, that was one of the most exciting things because in the same way that Ghostbusters kind of realized the idea of this technology that they very much created in how they capture ghosts, this was not from the lore, this little gizmo that he has. But we did think that it was a fun way to extract the material components for a magic spell that doesn't require rooting around in your pockets. Jonathan, have you got a personal favorite concept you got to bring? Um, I think, you know, the, the notion of the rule of cool is something that we feel really strongly about. Um, I know that if, you know, we were running an actual game, that is something we would apply. Um, there was a certain amount of controversy over our druid turning into an owlbear and our feeling was that, you know what, yes, technically it's a bit of a stretch, but it's too cool not to do. And um, now it seems like the Wizards of the Coast are actually embracing that <laughs> and changing the rules. So we've had a we've had a little impact on it. But, you know, that's that's the version of D&D that I love. It's the one with a little more freedom. Yeah, a foot in the rules and a foot outside of them, I think, is uh, grounds for a perfect campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of one of my favorite things that I got to see is, you know, I've, I've played kind of slightly more necromancy focused characters. So Speak to Dead, mm -hmm. I think is a, you bring it across brilliantly in the film in that like the rules are there, like the the five kind of question stuff. And it's that combined with the physical effects that really make it like it's a piece of cinema rather mm -hmm. than just me watching someone play the game. Right. right. Yeah, right. that was one of our favorite sequences um, mm -hmm. and being able to do it with people in suits as opposed to just motion capture. Any, brilliant. any way that we can um, uh, narratively uh, show flashbacks differently than just talking about something and seeing it, I think is appealing to us. It's sort of why we love the idea in the beginning of the movie, how Edgen is explaining his backstory through the lens of a parole hearing. Uh, is fun because it feels justified and natural and a little bit less expositional. And in the same way, to have these dead characters narrating what happened in this Battle of the Evermores is so much more fun than just hearing someone talk about it and then seeing it. We also love flashbacks that cut off abruptly. That's one of our <laughs> favorites. Right. Mm. We're coming to the end of our time, so just as a last question, I'd like to ask, if you were to be invited back to do a sequel, what is a bit of The Forgotten Realms you didn't get to do here that you'd <laughs> love to do next? Um, I mean, look, we, we really just focused on this one and, um, hopefully people turn out and there is that opportunity. If there is, then yeah, I, I don't know specifically where we want to go, but definitely farther afield from the fantasy venues you've seen. Absolutely. D&D has those, you know. Without getting into specifics, I do think that there are certain monsters that have not been depicted that are quite iconic in D&D &D that I think we'd want to explore. 
And I know that, you know, I, we, we're always interested in the, the clockwork side of D&D, which is so removed from traditional fantasy depictions of stuff. So I think that would be an interesting thing to explore as well. Excellent. Well, I'd love the film and I'm very excited to, and hopefully that you'll get something to do more in the future. Thanks so Thank much. you, guys. It was yeah. great to have like, a properly nerdy chat with yes. you. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Appreciate it. And we're back to regular podcasting. Uh, we're going to talk about some TV now, because, of course, we are a multimedia, multicultural podcast where we like to cover many, many mediums. Um, I have not watched either this season of Succession or Yellow Jackets, of which I believe we're both an Single episode episode in. episode so far, yeah. Right. Early days, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got time. <laughs> like, Emma, I know that you've watched both of them, but shall we start with Yellow Jackets? Let's do it. Let's absolutely do it. So the first episode is out now on Paramount Plus, I believe it's out on these days. It is. I think it's out on Fridays. Um, Right. Yeah, on Paramount Plus. And, you know, we're picking up... uh, You watched the last season, right? Have you both... I did. Matt, have Mm -hmm. you watched the new episode as well? Sweet. I uh, actually, I got halfway through it and I was like, I'm falling asleep here. I'm going to... I should have probably (laughs) finished watching it before doing this show. But you know what? That half was pretty good. So what I will point out, I'm not actually a big fan of the first season of Yellow Jackets. So what I would like you to do is see if you could coax me around to maybe coming back for season two. Okay, yeah. So I imagine like some of the issues you probably had with the first season was like it 
gives us a load of like basically asks us a lot of questions doesn't give us a lot of answers mm-hmm. um and yeah the first episode obviously it's only episode one um of season two kind of carries on right where they left off um there's still a lot of questions that we have about a lot of the characters but um the cast is also expanding like sort of as we've seen people get killed off um it feels like they're kind of bringing a few more characters to the forefront now um which is a lot to juggle um we put out a who the hell are any of these characters guide yeah. on the on the website if you want to uh, assess that because you need it i even just coming back to like I think it always got me how some of the younger characters look absolutely nothing like some of their older older counterparts. Yeah. The the younger version of the Melanie Linsky character doesn't look like her, so I was like, "Who is this again?" Like, I really like the show, and yet, like, just couldn't retain the information. Yeah, there's a lot of people, and they, like you said, sometimes they don't always look the same so like a lot of like when they skip to the present day it's like i have to wait for them to say like the name and it's like oh right yeah that's that actually <laughs> that's might be worth other. doing just in case um you know our listeners might not be familiar with the first series as well like what what's the what's the pitch for this okay yeah so the story is that it's a like girls um soccer team they're going to i think it's like playoffs or regionals or something they get on a plane the plane crashes and they're in the forest and it's a very mysterious show where obviously some people die in the crash and then like you've got this group of girls and like this one teacher, I think, who are um, basically trying to survive. Um, and some of them are like friends, some of them aren't. So that kind of creates its own frictions. They've all got different ideas of like how to survive and what they should do and they're struggling through it. So that's kind of like half of it set in the past when that's all happening. And then the show, it jumps around a ton um, to the present where you can see like what these these girls are doing now um, in the present day and how like what happened in the forest is now sort of kind of ruining their life in the present as well. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's a very mysterious show. It's, it's weird in that there's sort of, there's some kind of like culty, animal cannibalism thing going on in the forest that like none of them want to talk about and kind of as we get through season one and now into season two they're trying to tease that out a bit more of like what's going on what started this you know is it carried on into present day as well see that was one of the things that i um that i didn't get on with in the first season was that kind of like it very much like establishes at the start that there's some sort of a cult thing going on and then does nothing with it for the rest of the first season and i kind of like it 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 didn't jive with me that there wasn't any form of payoff for that within the first season. Yeah. Um, do they, so that's kind of been revisited with a little bit more strength in the start of this season, is it? A little bit. So it is kind of, they're doing that thing where the end of the episode is like cliffhanger, like you want to watch the next yeah. episode, like you want to come back for this thing. It kind of, I'd say the first episode does start off kind of slow. It focuses on like tying up a few little bits that we saw from last season um, but now, yeah, it is kind of moving its focus to that cult stuff sort of towards mm-hmm. the end of the first episode. So, yeah, I have so many questions that I am <laughs> just waiting to be answered. I really hope they do it. Um, but, yeah, it does feel kind of like a bit of a slow start, but we are sort of heading there um, and we've got a whole season to get there as well. And is it, am I right? Is Elijah Wood in this season? Yeah, yeah. he is. Absolutely. So he's- is he in the present timeline or is he in the past? Has he somehow worked his way onto the island or? 
I'm not sure because we haven't seen him yet. But um, okay, I'm... you get a little bit of his voice in this uh, this episode. I don't know if you caught that. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I won't won't do a spoiler, but look out for that. Yeah, it's. I feel like a lot of new stuff is being sort of thrown in already, like to ready to set up kind of what's happening this season. Um, I'm trying not to spoil anything in case people Mm -hmm. haven't watched the last season. Like you'll want to sort of get through that definitely before starting this one. Um, But yeah, like I think my whole thing with this show is just I'm very curious and I feel like we're left so in the dark that sometime soon we've got to start getting answers and I'm hoping that's going to pay off. Yeah, like Mm -hmm. as we get into this season. The thing I felt last season was sometimes there are episodes where the present day can be way more interesting than the past, and sometimes where the past can be way more interesting than the present day, and it really feels like I wish I was watching like two different shows sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I wish part of it got an opportunity to be better just by nature of like having to be the um, solo. The, yeah, yeah, like like being the the point of attention. Uh, and I hope, although I've heard maybe not, that that balance is corrected a little bit this season. So mm-hmm. fingers crossed. Yeah. From from that first episode, Emma, I think the one thing that I came to Yellow Jackets quite late. I think I was probably about two or three months late to the party. Um, I, f- I wanted it to be weirder than it was, and I think it has the potential to be weird, but I was quite surprised at how normal it is. It was quite a lot of normal people just in bad situations. Yeah. Do you get the impression that it's going a bit more weird this time, or is it still It's, very... get, it's getting weird. I okay. have a feeling <laughs> yeah, it's the weird season now. We're yeah. on that path now. Um, yeah, like this episode, at the end of like the finale, kind of you get some some weirdness there and then yeah that's brought right into this episode as well and sort of I'm I really hope we start to get some answers about like Mm -hmm. particular characters because they're putting them right at the front of this they're pushing like okay you know you two are still linked in some way but you might not like you didn't realize it like I feel like there's going to be some sort of like revelations hopefully very soon maybe i'm back as, as as the wick says maybe i'm back i hope it's good so that I've, we've sold you on it and then you actually mm-hmm. enjoy it <laughs> but uh talking of answers this year hbo are presumably going to give the answer who's going to win the kiss from daddy who's going to win the kiss from daddy oh. um succession is back it's the final season uh i am very excited about this i am holding off watching the first episode so I can watch the first two together. I'm going to do a bit of a, do the last couple of episodes of, of the previous season and the first two of this. But guys, tell me, how is the opening of Succession final season? There was like an opening, like couple like lines of this where I like didn't get it. I thought like, oh, is the writing like fallen off this season? It's like, it's not as funny as it could be. Uh, and then I'm like proven wrong within like seconds after having that thought. It's so funny. Um, I'm going to open up my capricious uh, bag of takes here. Um, I think it's, uh, it, it, there just really isn't anything like it in the sense that like, the majority of the dialogue is things that aren't being said or things that are being said by not saying the specific thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's um, a scene in this where they're going over um, like financials for potentially buying a new business. And the person that they're making the argument with is constantly going like, oh, well, I don't like to talk about this stuff, but keep saying it and like nodding. Like, I really do like to keep talking about this stuff. I just don't want you to see me as somebody that does. Like, it's so good about that sort of stuff and i love it 
Yeah, like absolutely. The characters, I think, like you said, it's the stuff that they don't say as well, but you can see like so much in how they phrase the things they are saying, like they're dancing around kind of what they actually want to say. And you see that so much in this episode as well. Um, and I think you get that a lot more with like the siblings than you do with like um, Logan. He's very much just like, I'm going to say what's on my mind. And even in this episode, you kind of see him as this sort of, this lonely he sort is of like, lonely. Yeah. And <laughs> that's the thing. They're all horrible people, right? Mm. But you can't help but feel a little bit bad for him. So I'm not going to spoil the episode or anything. But yeah, you see him kind of like part of the episode is like focused on him where he's doing his thing and he's like sort of cooped up in this house and like he's kind of realizing like all the people around him he doesn't really like and they don't really like him either they just like are kind of scared of him or work for him and then like on the flip side of that you've got all the siblings who are actually like trying to get on and do something and like they're outside in this like you know lovely like sort of beautiful sunny place and it's just like just seeing the two, like, how different they are and how I'd far apart that. they are. Like, I it's just really cool. I hadn't realised that until you pointed it out. Like, the deliberate cinematography of putting Logan in, like, this dark, like, stuffy office and having the kids just, like, hanging out in, like, the light. Like, just actually having a good time together. Yeah. It's, like, actually really deliberate and pretty cool. That thing that you said there, Emma, about kind of, like, you, you can't feel sorry for logan because he's ultimately you know he's the rupert murdoch sort of analog right <laughs> yeah. but you sort of do reminds me a lot of like my feelings for and they're very similar setups but tywin lannister in game of thrones you know hbo have done this before and that kind of tywin is despicable like that guy has done some horrible things in his career but you sort of feel a bit sorry for him because all his children are kind of fuck-ups and they keep going around messing shit up in westeros and he's just like i just wish like you just stop doing this and just be normal rulers so i can keep my house in check <laughs> and kind of like logan is essentially a kind of like you know the the more realistic more modern day version of that right in that kind of like he he's got like his shit together but none of ev- all of his kids are just running rampant oh definitely uh, this yeah. might this episode might question what your uh, your assessment of that really? actually yeah cool which is very cool to do uh yeah like uh so where are we at in terms of like obviously the ending is not going to be what any of us see because they'll switch it like before we're we're in the final kind of few yards but I reckon here's my prediction he's mm-hmm. he's gone this season he's going to he's going to uh he's going to be what, what why am I trying to find a euphemism for die <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I, he's going to die I'm not going to use flowery language I think it'll happen like maybe halfway through the season and, and, got to... and do you think is it is it going to be you know is it going to be roman is roman going to get this is tom going to swing in mm. who do you think's going to take the business i think judging off this one thing i was really surprised about actually in this like first episode is how you know roman's kind of he's been building up to being like a bit more responsible in like the last season but most of his character is him kind of cracking jokes (laughs) or yeah like he's you know he's he's not really serious about like work Mm -hmm. he kind of he kind of wants to do nothing make some inappropriate or horrible jokes kind of bully people a little bit um but we see like a really like more down-to-earth version of him in this first episode and kind of like he's trying to rein in his other two siblings i think 
he is still definitely scared of his dad. But it like, is also, so he, weird that he's he like the competent, break. level-headed yeah. one this episode, and yet <laughs> he's Roman Roy. Exactly. Like that's not what you expect at all. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, I could see him actually becoming like a big player, like as the season goes on, because yeah. If he's the one that's level-headed and, you know, makes kind of making sense, then that's, like, a kind of a scary thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm so excited to dive in and say that will be my uh, my thing this weekend when episode two's out. Going to marathon, like, four or five episodes of Succession. Yes, mate. Right. right. We're going to jump into feedback for a little bit before we start our next topic. Because Emma... Uh, a lovely man called Stephen Geller has emailed in uh, to talk about something that I know you have a lot of history in because the first time I ever commissioned you to do some work on a previous website I worked for was to write about this game. Yes, and it is about Counter-Strike. Very exciting. So thank you, Stephen, for, um, for writing in so we could talk about it. So Stephen says, some quick appreciation to begin with. I moved to London, uh, sorry, from London to Melbourne, Australia last year. And like most expats can struggle with homesickness. Been listening to this podcast since tw- uh, 2017. Wow. Uh, and no matter where I am, um, I get a huge feeling of British Weetabixie donut goodness and feel right at home again. <laughs> Thanks for your hard work. That's what we're doing. Um, now some feedback. Since moving to Australia, I've had to rebuild my social gaming groups since time zones suck. It's forced me to embark on the terrifying task of A, making new friends in my almost 30s, and B, picking up whatever online games they were already playing. Having progressively meant more uh, more kindred spirits who also like to stare at screens and click on things <laughs> after 6pm on a weekday, I've discovered there's a huge Counter-Strike Global Offensive, CSGO, scene in Australia. Um, that's really cool, actually. I didn't know that. Uh, everyone with a PC seems to play it here, um, and if they don't, they're on Valorant instead. I started playing it just to fit in at first, but I was quickly swept up by the competitive scene and I'm now an avid follower of the eSport, watching every major tournament and binging every highlight video YouTube has to offer. You're probably across the news that Valve announced Counter-Strike 2 last week. They did. It's very exciting. Um, And like most of the community, I'm very excited by all the changes they have in store, but I was a bit surprised to hear no mention of it on the podcast, leading me to realise that eSports as a whole are seemingly never discussed. My question is, what's the deal? Is it something that nobody happens to find interesting or is there just no space with everything going on? Do any of you follow esports yourselves? Respect the C, Gravediggers, Simple and Zen, the best CSGO and Rocket League players respectively. So I think to immediately answer the what is the deal yo about us not discussing esports, I think it's because basically the majority of us largely play kind of like a lot of single player games i know emma you are a big multiplayer hound so you can bring in a little bit here matt are you largely i know kind of like uh you're you've got a very broad plethora of kind of like genres that you pick from lots of devolver stuff and stuff yes but... i am really cool matt Thank you. <laughs> uh, i used to play a lot of uh counter-strike source uh back mm-hmm. when i was a teenager but uh, and i played a little bit of csgo but nowhere near um, as much as some other people. But the yeah. Counter-Strike 2 announcement did excite me, specifically mm-hmm. because of what they've done to Smoke. Smoke Ooh, is cool smoke now. Smoke looks very cool now. It's mm-hmm. volumetric now, from yeah. what I understand. Yeah, so, I mean, I can't believe it. Like, CSGO came out in 2012. Like, that's how... Did, was it... 
Is it is it a decade old now? It is. Um, but like in recent years, we've seen way more people getting into mm-hmm. it. Obviously, it went free to play as well, which really helped. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with with Counter Strike Two, there's lots of exciting things that they're um, they're bringing. It feels like it's not it's not going to be like a brand new experience. Like if you've played CS:GO, I think it is still going to feel very like familiar because we're seeing you know the same kind of maps. Some of them are having overhauls. Some of them are just having a little touch up with like lighting improvements and stuff like that. But yeah, smokes are very exciting because like currently in CSGO, it's basically just a grey mist you put down on the floor and um, you can shoot through it. But, you know, if you're aiming sort of through the smoke, you can't actually see anyone on the other side. You know, it's it's basically like a grey wall that kind of sits there. So if you are shooting through it, it's kind of like a wall bang. If you Mm -hmm. hit someone, great. If not, like, you know, you can't see it until it like dissipates. With these new smokes, yeah, if you shoot through them, the smoke will actually like dissipate around your shot so you can see through it, kind of like a little mm-hmm. window for a second, which is really cool. Um, and yeah, like same with grenades, they're going to like kind of change the shape of the smoke a little bit. Um, you're going to see it like fill vents and stuff too, kind of before it would just be in one spot. And, you know, it would, again, it's like a flat wall basically. Um, whereas with the new one, it fills the whole vent and... It's going to be weird, like, I think, getting used to all that stuff again. Um, mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to have, like, one-way smokes as well, which is, like, quite a big thing on certain maps um, if you're, you know, CT trying to look after a bomb site. But, um, yeah, it is, like, incredibly exciting, I think. Another thing that's really cool about CS2 is the the whole thing with tick rates. This has been, like, a discussion, like, in competitive games forever, right? CS goes on like 64 tick rate, um, whereas like something like Valorant is like praised for being 128, which basically if like you don't know anything about tick rate, it's just how many times like the server refreshes. So mm-hmm. if it's on like 64, it's possible for like actions and things you do to get missed between yeah. ticks. Um, and yeah, like I think the yeah, CS goes 64 on the official servers anyway. I think like Face It and ESCA are 128, but. If you're just playing stock CSGO, um, which a lot of people do, then yeah, you'll be like very excited to hear that Valve have been working on this new, I think it's called Subtick Architecture is what they're calling it, which sounds very fancy. But basically, it just means Sounds that... like a, a house that uh, a little <laughs> bug would make in your skin. <laughs> <laughs> it does. But um, yeah, like basically this, this new architecture they're talking about, it records like your your actions and like your throws and shots independently of the server refreshing so basically it means that everything should feel more responsive um which is really cool because that's such a massive thing in a game like csgo where every second counts um and everything should look the same and everyone should be hearing and seeing the same thing at the same time in the game so that's great i think I think if people kind of like are used to a game that's more like maybe Overwatch or kind of like COD and stuff like that, I think the difference between those games and Counter-Strike is it's like every millimeter, every kind of like, like I would say every second, every kind of like centimeter of the the ground is so important. Um, it, it's so like surgical in comparison to like a messier game like COD, right? Exactly. Like, it's the most stressful game <laughs> you can play. But it's one of those games where the highs are just so incredibly high. Like mm-hmm. if you are on, 
you know if it's like 1v5 you get the ace you are absolutely yeah. like flying high after a moment like that but then if you're having you know on the flip side if you're having a bad game you're having the worst time of your life because everything's going wrong um and like with something like this as well like you know with Overwatch you're kind of and and like Call of Duty as well you're back in the game really quickly after you mm -hmm. die and stuff with CS you're like you have to wait if you die like 30 seconds into the round you're then spectating for the whole thing. It's excruciating to watch as well as your team like mess up or, you know, if they do well, you feel kind of bad because you're like, well, I messed up immediately. I put mm -hmm. us at a disadvantage. But yeah, um, and I think with esports as well, like for me personally, for um, CSGO, I kind of, I got into the game like a little bit later. So it was around like 2014, 2015. So it'd been out for a little bit. Um, and I went to like a live esports like thing it mm -hmm. was i think it was in stratford and i got to see that was like the kind of my first time seeing like csgo was seeing professionals play it live and it was like such a cool atmosphere to be in it's kind of like you know when you go to like a football match or something like everyone's got their team and they're shouting and they're really excited and i got really like swept up in it for a few years um and it was really cool as well because you see you know these i saw the players that were doing really well in this game i was like wow i need to try this so you get to go home and play it you know which is cool like i can't do that with football because i'm terrible <laughs> so this is something i can actually play myself and i got really really into the game and into like you know learning smoke grenades and you know learning like wall bangs and stuff and yeah ended up doing guides and stuff for matt mm -hmm. um but yeah like i feel like in recent years i think as soon as i kind of got out of the habit of playing CSGO. I haven't played like competitive, like properly for like a little while. I feel like sort of the esports side of it dropped off for me too. But when you are into it, it is, you know, something that is really fun to follow. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you follow it for any other sport, like um, games or anything, but it is really cool to get into. And yeah, like I think with Counter-Strike 2 coming in the summer as well, it will be something that I'll probably, I'll definitely dip back into the game because it's like, you know, exciting, relatively like large changes that we're going to see. I think that's going to inspire a lot of people to go back to the game if they have sort of like slept on it for a bit. But also like, yeah, I could see esports like interest picking up around it as well because we'll have next year definitely like the majors will be played in CS2. Yeah, I uh, in terms of kind of like doing esports, I know kind of like it's it, it's largely not spoken about on the podcast because I guess kind of like a lot of kind of like us, like I know we all know what Jesse's kind of like choices, like he's got like his horror stuff and his retro stuff. And then me, Dale and Cardi, I think quite often have very similar kind of overlapping things where we play a lot of story focused games. So as a podcast crew, I guess kind of like our full multiplayer kind of like investment is less than than kind of like we would need for for I guess that full immersement in esports but certainly when I was playing uh, Rainbow Six a lot I used to watch kind of like mostly the invitationals rather than the majors um and did genuinely find the invitation I've been to the invitational um two or three times like in person and that is always very exciting and I guess part of that is Rainbow Six Siege is like heavily influenced by C by a CS right, so it's got that kind of five v five. When you die, you die, and when you get to those clutch moments, when you get an ace and stuff, seeing that happen in a big arena, 
and following the journeys of, of kind of people as, as they kind of like figure out what character they want to play, which obviously is a part of um, of, of Siege and not CS and, and seeing the master kind of like those elements. All of that was very cool as a very, very casual watcher. But um, I'm certainly at a point where I've kind of I don't play anything multiplayer at the moment, like everything I'm playing are kind of like ridiculous RPGs or uh, or kind of, you know, like more story led kind of shooters and stuff like that. So I don't have anything to contribute. I know jack all about esports, basically. I used to play uh, Dota 2 about a decade ago. And oh, it, really? Cool. And it ruined my life. So <laughs> uh, I will not be uh, spending a lot of time thinking about that anymore, about esports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the final question I have for you on this, Emma, is why is it called Counter-Strike 2 when it's definitely not the second <laughs> Counter-Strike? Yeah, I feel like... Th- they should have probably gone with CSGO too yeah. because mm-hmm. it is very much like, you know, we are still going to, you know, right now in the, um, they have got like a limited test that's running until it releases in summer. Mm-hmm. And in summer it is actually going to be like an upgrade to CSGO. So CSGO is going away and sure. this is going to replace it. Um, but yeah, like I feel like it is, you know, we're, we're seeing the same maps. Where, you know, Dust 2 is the one that's in at the moment. We know mm-hmm. that, like, um, Italy, I think, is going to get, like, an overhaul. Nuke it, is being prettied up and stuff. Like, Would you say it's closer to being, it's more of a, like, a, a remake than it is a sequel in many ways? Yeah, like, it does feel like with this, we're getting a lot of the quality of life improvements that I feel like CSGO definitely deserved. I'm glad we're finally getting those, like... You know, since it has released, we have had certain maps taken out and um, remade. Like, um, they did that with Dust 2. They did it with um, Lavrage and stuff and Nuke as well. Um, Yeah, I feel like a lot of this stuff, it's like stuff we've been waiting for and hoping that Valve are going to add. And I think because there has been so much interest in recent years, it's like, okay, now's the time. It's finally happening. We're getting these upgrades. But it isn't by any stretch of the imagination like a brand new counter-strike it's very much building on go mm-hmm. it sounds cool like i haven't played go for like if it's been out 10 years then i probably haven't played cs go for about eight um but I'll, I'll dive in even if it's just to see how pretty like maps from my university era and childhood basically because i have played like i played some of 1.6 back in the day and then i was played a lot of source when it was used to have like all my friends would set up like did you do zombie servers when you were a kid where you just yeah. have a bunch of ai in it and you'd stab <laughs> them um all of that was 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 good fun and i will dot back in but almost certainly i'll find it incredibly frightening from the first match and then never go back to it again that's the problem right everyone is so good <laughs> that like <laughs> i think the like the learning curve with a game like Counter-Strike, if you're just going into deathmatch or going into casual, like you can have a good time. You're going to find the weapons that you like. It's probably going to be the AK and the M4. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like if you get into it, if you start to get into it competitively, like you want to play ranked games, you want to be the best, you start like with me, I sort of, I got yeah really into it where it was like, okay, I'm going to train for like an hour before I play. And it's like if you get in that deep, then it's like okay, you're you're fully into it, and it's I it's just, really fun. But it can easily like kind of take over your life a little bit in that way. I'm just so aware that like a bunch of like Eastern European teenagers have a lot more time to spend playing than I do. 
Yeah, yeah, it's kind of that thing. Like, the, there's such a classic feeling of kind of playing on. Is it dust where you start in the kind of little underground segment, yeah. then you go up, and just getting to the top of that ramp and just immediately kind of dying from a headshot? And it's like, okay, okay, yeah, I need, I need way more practice on this against much more newbie people. Yeah, no, it is, it's. I recommend it though. Like, even though it's like, okay, it's it's asking a lot of your time if you want to be really good at it. But like I said, it's it's one of those games where the highs are really high, the lows are horrible. But like, you can't, you, it, I can't help it. Like, I just once I get back into it again, that's it. I know I'm going to be hooked. Like, it's dangerous. Mm. <laughs> nice. Well, we were recently talking about uh, getting hooked on things uh, in regards to watching movies over and over again. So we'll jump, jump into some feedback, and this one is from Gillian H, who says, Hi, IGN UK. I haven't seen Battleship five times, which I will point out is a thing that Jesse Gomez has done, was Battleship five I times. I listened to that cinema. in public, and I, like, I facepalmed on the like. uh, But Gillian says, When I was 14, I did see Spider-Man 3 five times in the cinema. The first was with family, but the other four times I was definitely by myself. I can't imagine why. I genuinely, unironically loved the film when I was young. Now I still love it for the goofy mess it is, and the the Bully Maguire memes never fail to make me laugh. Thanks for all you do. The podcast is a joy to listen to. I Guys, have you got it's... any films that you've watched so many times? I don't think Spider-Man 3 is great. But I do understand seeing it a lot in the cinema because, like, sure. the, the Sandman stuff was, like, a technical marvel of the time. Like, mm-hmm. just being able to, like, you know, maybe get a little extra glimpse of that. I totally get it. Yeah, it was also, it was massive when it came out. Like, I can remember, like, obviously Spider-Man 2 had been a colossally huge success. And the 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 desperation for Spider-Man 3 was, was huge and people were so anticipating it. The, it's easy to get caught up, right? Even if you eventually recognise that the film's a bit of a mess. Like, particularly if you're 14. Like, I, I, I love quite a lot of the, the prequel stuff when I was young. Went to see at least one of those twice. I think when I was sort of in, like, sort of finishing up primary school, about to head into, like, secondary school, that's when the Harry Potter movies were coming out. Mm-hmm. So I went and saw, I think I saw the first one, like, three times in the cinema, which is, like, <laughs> a very, like, kid thing to do, isn't it? Like, we had, like, I think one of my friends had a birthday party, so it was like, oh, we'll go see this this um, this Wizarding World movie, go see what's happening. Um, and, yeah, I also, like, I loved it so much at the time that I, like, forced my parents to go as well. Um that's the one that springs to mind for me. Like, yeah, definitely the first one. I think as we got through into the um, the later movies, like it was like, once is enough, you know? <laughs> but yeah, definitely for the first one, I saw that too many times. And I think we got it on DVD and I watched it constantly as well because I was really into the books and all that at the time. I think, um, I, I can't imagine that I've told this story on this podcast before. I saw the second Harry Potter movie in a cinema that had a clock on the left-hand side. Uh, and it really took me out of the experience because well, I'm like, like in the screen, it, like, yeah, in- like yeah, yeah, in the cinema itself, it had a clock, like a, um, it even had like hands on it, so I knew what time it was at all times, <laughs> and I couldn't enjoy the movie because I was just like, oh, it's only been forty minutes, yeah. like I couldn't immerse myself in the experience because I was being reminded of like being human, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I haven't really considered. Yeah, when you're in the cinema, I guess it's dark. Like, you, time just doesn't mm-hmm. exist in there, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I can imagine that taking you out of it a little bit. Yeah, I can't tell you where the cinema was as well. I've never been again. I like went with a like you know for a mate's birthday party or something like that. But like, yeah, it sucked. Um, I saw Spider Verse twice. Is the only one I can mm-hmm. think of. But I saw like Hot Fuzz twice. And I really nice. hated it the second time round for some oh, really? reason. I think I'd and seen it too soon, and like the jokes just don't quite hit the same. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know what's coming, and like, but I'd really enjoyed it that first time around. I, like left it like, oh, do I hate this movie now? I don't. I think it's very good. But... <laughs> right. Uh, well, if you've got, uh, if any of you at home have watched any ridiculous films, ideally bad films, many times for for weird reasons. Uh, IGN underscore UK feedback at IGN.com. Uh, Matt, you've got one from Nicholas Rowley. I'm very excited about this email. Uh, <laughs> Nicholas says, Hello, all. I hope you are all sitting down because, gosh darn, do I have something to blow your socks off. Continuing the conversation about the greatest form of donut, here comes a new challenger. Whilst shopping in my local supermarket, I came across this item, which has clearly fallen out of David Cronenberg's mind. Oh. Get ready. <laughs> Jaffa cake donuts. Jonuts. I can't decide if the fact that McVitie's are calling these a love child is biscuit enterprise suicide or marketing genius. <laughs> Can we talk about the name? Jonuts has our departed friend Scrabbles defected from Xbox already and is playing a huge brand <laughs> on us all. I did not purchase because my other half threw me a look so strong it nearly knocked the trolley over. Help, what should we should I do, in all caps? Do I go back and purchase every pack of them myself? Do I erase them from my memory? And we can all Mandela effect this shit out of existence. Always a big fan. Love to you all. And that's from Nick. I do like that the subject line for it was all in caps, obscene donut form. <laughs> Can't ignore that. <laughs> I like a Jaffa cake. I like a donut. What's not to, what's not to like? Uh, I, I tell you what's not to like, Matt, a donut. I am. I love the Jaffa cakes. I can demolish a pack of Jaffa cakes in about two minutes. Yeah, I've got to uh, not have them in the house anymore. I, I think yeah. I, there's no such thing as one Jaffa cake, unfortunately. No, it can't be done. Absolutely yeah. not. I tell you what, there is one of, though, a donut, because once you've had one, you'll never have another one. So a donut is uh, like they're, they're a ring donut shape. Jaffa cake, basically. So, so a ring of cake with a layer of chocolate on the top, and then like, these. like tunneling through the cake is like almost like a stuffed crust sort of pizza, but it's the the obviously the orange jelly from in the middle of a Jaffa cake. The cake bit of the donut is so dry, and like there's so much of it compared to a normal Jaffa cake because it's just big to make it a donut sort of size. It is so incredibly sawdust dry that it sucked all the joy out of what should have been a wonderful crossover. That sounds really sad. Like that's the thing. I feel like Jaffa cakes are already in their perfect form as well. Mm-hmm. Like don't mess with it. It is just leave it as it is. It's lovely. It's beautiful. Let's not let's not try and make it into something. It's not. Science and... has perfected the perfect snack. Exactly. Like we don't. <laughs> and every need to day mess with we it. stray further and further from God. <laughs> It's like just because you could doesn't mean that you should. Mm. Like it's it's a it's a te- it was a terrible terrible idea. And I and uh, Nick do do not like go go for the the whole Mandela effect stuff. 
erase them. I do occasionally see, uh, I don't know if they're called this, but they like Oreo nuts as well, which uh, oh, occasionally yeah. strike me as something that I might like. Should we should we just do this as a little bit of podcast content next next week? Do, do it in the office and uh, taste test. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but isn't Oreo nut? Is that not just that's that's actually a donut with like Oreos like sprinkled I on think the top, so. right? Yeah, little like, Oreo like, bits. If 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 a donut was actually genuinely a donut that had got like orange flavored jelly in it, mm. and then it was topped with chocolate, it would be banging, I'd imagine. Not this. That's some Heston faux... Blumenthal shit. Yeah. <laughs> This is just like a donut cannot be made of cake. Like, like, I mean, yes, a cake donut is a thing, but you can't make it out of the same cake that you make a Jaffa cake out of. It's just, it's not sponge. Yeah. Is it like a cake pop? Uh, I do, yeah, but I think they work really well because you know that when they make a cake pop, it's like buttercream, isn't it, that you mm. ram all the broken down cake into. And that makes it like nice and like it, it's got it's cakey it's nice it's it's soft and and stuff that that was dry and spongy it was like eating a, the thing that you do your dishes with i went to a press event recently uh that had cake pops and they were in like little wrappers which mm-hmm. was cool so i put one in my back pocket um and then i forgot about it and i took the entire Sit train it. home and uh guess what still ate it still ate it when i got home <laughs> it was still all right <laughs> yeah pretty good I mean, it had uh, puffed all the air out, so I'm just eating a flat cake pop. But it's still pretty good. Right, on to our final bit of feedback, which once again is about food on the video game and movies podcast. This is what we want. This is what we come <laughs> for, guys, really. Let's be serious now. <laughs> so this is from Alex D. And Alex says, hello, guys, and possibly girls. Long-time listener, sometimes writer. Writer inner, sorry. Um, hope everybody is vibing good today. I'm writing about two things today. First, Weetabix. When my brother and I were kids, our parents had a Christmas routine, which meant we were never allowed to open our presents until we eaten our breakfast. As you can imagine, the excitement of the day meant that eating was the last thing on our minds. So we developed the Weetabix trick. Before our parents got up, we'd crumble a few Weetabix crumbs into a bowl, a tiny splash of milk, and mash it together to make it look as though we'd had our breakfast it worked an absolute treat and we taught it to our little sister when she got a bit older too this is that so is good <laughs> that is amazing alex um secondly our donut vans and midlands thing i don't know but i do know we had them every week at a car boot sale when i grew up in redditch and now 40 odd years later and living in Walsall. There's a garden centre near us, or as we call it, Budget Sea Life Centre on account of it being a free afternoon out for the kids. The main reason we go there is the amazing donut van in the car park. Anyway, love you all. Thanks for the great show over the years and always regard the sea with a healthy respect. So, Do you guys know what, what people are talking about when they say a donut van? Is there a guy frying it in there? It's yes, like ice yeah. cream van, but for donuts. Does it turn well, up? More and- like a... More like a burger van sort of thing. Okay. Like, so me and Dale were on last week and someone had emailed in about this. And me and Dale, as both people originally from the Midlands, know, like, like it's baked into you as, like, a child, like, this like this image and this smell of... They look like burger vans. And, like, when I was a kid, there was one in the high street of the town that That's I used to go to. That's what I was going to ask, if it was, like, a car boot thing or whether or not it was, like, a standard, like, oh, you just go out to the shopping centre and there is one. 
so 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 very often at car boots uh i've always seen them at kind of like i can remember as a kid like my dad would take me to like car shows and there'd always be one around there and there's just yeah they're like a white burger van looking thing in which like there's a guy in there frying donuts and then they'll toss them in the most amount of granulated sugar you could possibly get and serve them in a paper bag as far as i know neither of you are from the midlands so i want to know is this a thing that you know of no, I think the closest thing I have to that is probably like, and this is outside of London, you know, and you go to Brighton, you go on the pier and you get mm-hmm. donuts there. I think that's probably the closest thing to it. But yeah, I've, I don't think I've ever seen one in like a shopping center or anything like that. Yeah. See, the thing is with with a donut fan is that the, the donut you get from it is not only is it incredibly greasy, I don't actually like them. Um, they're very greasy, but also they look more like massive onion rings than they do donuts <laughs> because of the like they're not being baked unlike a, 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 a tray or anything like that. They are like piped like lengths of donut dough just being dropped into kind of, uh, well, I guess a vat of massively hot boiling oil. So it's very um, rustic looking donuts that you get in yeah, the bag. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Just so people can update their wikis. I'm from uh, I'm from Slough, where we don't have anything. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got the original UK office. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, if you've got uh, any tips on how to use Weetabix for for the good of the family. Or, or, or any other donut chat. Uh, again, it's IGN underscore UK feedback at IGN.com. And, uh, and that is the, uh, the end of the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It's been lovely. Hey, loved it. Let's do a triple mat again. Yeah, triple mat. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty good stuff. Uh, thank you for everyone that has struggled through listening to this. I know that I am not as gracious as a host as, as Mr. Shut Cardio up. or Dale. You're amazing. <laughs> everyone write in to say how amazing. I, I'm is. not looking for praise. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I don't don't like it. I'm like Joe. Like like don't do it. Um, I think uh, as you pointed out a little earlier, uh, Matt, um, you gave a little hint of what I think our final piece of music should be, which is. The guy from YouTube singing the Succession theme tune. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Demi uh, the Juibe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's get that on. Uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. See ya. All the rich white folk are going to argue, and the new ever's best is going to win a kiss from daddy. All the rich white folk are going to argue, and the new ever's best is going to win a kiss from daddy. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.